Today's episode is brought to you by Slay House Publishing, recorded at Wayne Howard Studios. Welcome to Slay House Publishing Presents Lit Bits. He stole my line again. I, I'm taking over. This is Jeremy. You don't Welcome. Even, you don't even have a script. I, it's all up here, man. <laughs> we can it's all up here. Post. Yeah, insert a post of hollow sound. <laughs> it's all up here, man. A cave drip. <laughs> I don't need a script. I am the script. Where we're going, we don't need scripts. Samuel Dash Dashiell Dashiell Hammett, yeah, was an American author of hard-boiled detective novels. Now, what is a hard-boiled? All right, he had a lot of eggs. Okay, we. That's an upcoming. That's an upcoming pun Monday. It's like I wanted to write hard-boiled fiction, but I ran out of eggs. <laughs> oh, it's so it's so Eastery too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Damn it! What distinguishes a hard-boiled detective novel versus a detective novel? And I think for this answer, we kind of have to understand the cultural moment that Dash Hammett is writing in, right? Because right. most of his stuff was written in the, the late 1920s, early 1930s. So to give you guys a, a colorful image, bankers at this time were throwing themselves out windows. I don't think that that actually <laughs> happened. Let's play with oh, the let's but, play with the tall tales there for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean there there is like that's the urban legend, yeah. right? Like toward the end of the 1920s they were there, hurling was a, themselves. there was a huge stock market crash in 1928 that led to the Great Depression. Um the early years of the depression were really tough on like a lot of literature. Um a lot of you know. I mean, let's be fair. Stuff. The depression was tough on a lot of people. <laughs> it Not was, just the literature suffered. It was tough. It was yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. It was we tough only, on a lot of people. We only have feelings for those people. Um, but one of the things that I think we do see is is a, kind of a resilience, if you will, of some some pop culture, right? Um, because I, I think people, especially, it, we come back to this question of fiction, right? In hard times, I think people do need stories, right? Sure, yeah. And yeah. I, I think that a lot of depression literature. I mean, just look at all the stories in, some of that. in fiction that came out of the last presidency. Yeah. <laughs> right, look how many Oof. Netflix shows came out during the pandemic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, th- I think Alma Katsu has uh, quite a, a bit to say about the light. The last person. <laughs> she did. Yeah, she, she did. did. <laughs> if you haven't heard that episode yet, folks, check it out. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty great. I think what distinguishes a hard-boiled detective versus any other kind of detective is that um, uh, detective stories toward the turn of the century and into the 20s and 30s, um, I, I think really were characterized more by what we might call like an armchair detective. There's a lot of pop culture in this moment of people who would kind of sit back and solve problems or solve mysteries um, just for the fun of it. Right. Right. It was like a, it's a hobby. So we see a lot of like hobbyist criminologists crop up in pop media at this time. So that's like, like in a way kind of Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I know he was like, he had a lot of stories, but he was, he wasn't, he wasn't a part of the police force. He was like this, just somebody who had studied this kind right. of craft and they, he used his powers of deduction to help the police right. in, in solve these crimes. I think yeah. we also have to look to authors like Agatha Christie, who um, for a long time was writing 
stories like the Miss Marple series or um, Hercule Poirot, right? Um, these these uh, archetypal archetypal archetypal. Sure. Didn't we go through this archetypal? We did. Archetypical? Archetypal. Archetypal is the the adjective. It archetype is. is the noun. Right. Yeah. So what are you trying yeah. to say? Noun archetypal. or adjectives? Archetypal. Yeah. These archetypal characters. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, I I think that, that what what makes them what they are, right, is this this notion that um it's not really a job for them so much as just like it's something they do, right? It's a hobby. Yeah. Poirot, I think, was actually I think he actually was a real detective. Um, but he never really takes a case for money, right? He he typically just kind of becomes involved, and he just does it for fun. Miss um, Marple was not a detective, right? She's just uh, someone who's very observative. Right. And, um, observative? That's a word, right? Observant. 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 No, observant. observant. Yeah, observant. There we go. Observant. See, with great with great power comes great responsibility not to fuck up the lines. I've learned you this. You know what? This is and now it's Trevor in the hot seat. We've got <laughs> we've got a prize out there for only, whenever we get things wrong. Only for when Jeremy gets things wrong. Oh well. You but know we what? should update the prize fuck. now. If if Trevor's going to take over some of the podcasting hosting responsibilities, then then the prize has to extend to him. So. I like observative. Observative. It's interesting. Observative. Yeah. It reminds me of the. I, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna look up that word right now. Go for it. See if it's a. It reminds word. me of the 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 lawyer on Seinfeld that was spoofing like um, the O.J. Simpson lawyer. Do you guys remember that? Oh, there's been so many jokes. The 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 about uh, the O.J. Simpson lawyer. Yeah, he's like always making up it words. It is a word. Observative. Paying close attention to detail. Watch well, what does observant mean? The exact well, same it's, thing. It's, it's, it's the same. same thing. Everything <laughs> is in the dictionary now. Do you notice that? I just need. I need my aha moment. I Dude. need my ha. <laughs> That's a good. You win. You win that one. All right. You're We're right. not playing Scrabble though, so let's. <laughs> <laughs> Disorientated is, is, is in the dictionary. Disorientated. Disorientated. <laughs> Actually, that makes sense because that's disor- like a kick in the balls. <laughs> That's unscrupulative. I hate that so much. <laughs> That's unscrupulative. Unscrupulative. <laughs> anyway, oh. anyway, so hard, so hard boiled. So the hard boiled detective, I, th- I think, is in in contrast with these other detectives. It is someone who is a detective, like by actual labor, by actual trade. They, yeah, they right? accept jobs. This they is, get up and yeah, they do it. This is their job. Right. This is what they do. And I think specifically that the, the hard boiled detective is um, a kind of character that uh, influenced a lot of like later noir film um, and noir sto- stories in that um, they kind of like coexist in this seedy underbelly of the real world, right? right? And and they have kind of a foot in, in both spheres, a foot in the legitimate and a foot in the underworld. That kind of characterizes the, the hard-boiled detective. Nice. Okay, cool. So Dash Hammett... that up. Yeah, Dash Hammett is one of the... Um, I mean, one of the best no- novelists of the 20th century, one of the best writers of the 20th century. We wouldn't call him prolific, though, would we? No, I don't think he he, he it really was. I mean, maybe he was in his moment. Right, right, uh, right. But not necessarily prolific when we look at the, the total sum of his work. Because the total sum of his work is, uh, what, five novels and then you know, some we... short story, a handful yeah. of short stories. So 
We can go through his biography, though. Um, he was born in 1894, died in 1961. Um, he was raised in Maryland. So left... he didn't live that long. He, he no, wasn't... He, he, he did not. Um, he was only, what, 65? Yeah. Yeah. 64 so, or something uh, like that. That's, yeah, that's so, relatively so young. Maybe, maybe a little. Uh, I mean, back then that wasn't as young. No, but, he, maybe but... it wasn't. Yeah. I don't. I didn't, I'm not Our math skills aren't great. So he went by Dash, D- Dashiell? Yeah, his first not, name not was Daniel. Samuel. Yeah. Dashiell, okay. Dashiell Hammett. Maybe he was 67. 67. He didn't want to be confused with uh, Judge Samuel Hammett of Kenosha, Wisconsin. Oh, is that right? Is that a real dude? No, I just made that up. Oh, okay. Oh. All right. Well, okay, fun. Sorry to, to, <laughs> sorry to Sam Hammett a, out in Kenosha. <laughs> Sam Hammett. I'm a fiction writer, guys. This I is what I do. I want to call him Ham Sandwich now. Ham Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Hammett. That'd be pretty funny. Our, what book did you bring us today, Ham Sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was raised in Maryland. Uh, he left school at 13. He served as an operative for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency from 1915 until early 1922 um and uh and during that time he also served in world war one um he grew pretty disillusioned with pinkerton after the agency coordinated some strike breaking efforts um in the 20s and uh in 1918 he enlisted and served in in the motor ambulance corps um during world war one right yeah. Um, and uh, overseas, he contracted um, tuber—I'm uh, sorry, yeah, contracted Spanish flu and tuberculosis. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. That's a bad combination. Um, so he, he spent he spent most of his time during World War One as a patient in Tacoma, Washington. Um, there he. I've met- been to Tacoma. It's a good place to spend as a patient. Good, bl- good place <laughs> to be a patient. Were you a patient in Tacoma, Washington? No, I just saw some. <laughs> Why do I even write a script? <laughs> See, now we're on board. Now we're on the same plane here. Now you get it. Now you get it. <laughs> I don't um, derail you nearly as often. Oh, no, but it's so much fun when I derail you. So <laughs> I'm going to have another blow-up moment. <laughs> Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, hang on to your fucking pants. Oh now now people are going to understand why you blew up last week. <laughs> Can we start calling them Herms? <laughs> oh, man. Guys, I can't do the podcast today. I got the Herms. <laughs> the Herms are after me. The Herms are on my ass again. Oh, now I just picture some like really old man like, get back here. Oh, no, it's Herm. It's the Herms. <laughs> Go ahead, Trevor. Sorry about that. Who's that's, Josephine like... Dolan? I was talking about his love life. He's, oh, a nurse. She's a nurse. Yeah, she was a nurse. Um, she she married Dash in uh, 1921 um, in San Francisco. And most of uh, Dash Hammett's fiction takes place in San Francisco as a result, right? That's right. kind of where he lived. Um, he had two daughters with Dolan, uh, Mary Jane and Josephine, in 1921 and 1926, respectively. Um, he got separated from the family on account of tuberculosis. The the government actually stepped in and said, you can't live with your wife and, and daughters uh, because of the tuberculosis. Right. Because they'll contract it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and this was pre-antibiotics for, right. for tuberculosis. For, for that sort of disease, yeah. Tuberculosis, I think, was like a, a centuries-long plague. I mean, I, I mean, I think people suffered like 
it's one that we don't talk about a lot, but it was it was definitely a yeah an epidemic. That it was yeah. really spanned. really bad. Yeah. yeah, and it was scary. Everybody and he, was he terrified was sick of that with it for his entire life. That yeah. sucks. Right. It's basically yeah. your lungs start falling apart, right? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Essentially, so he he uh, was separated from the family. Um, his marriage disintegrated after that. Although he continued to write Sad. and and use the money from his writing to support his family. Um, you know, for for many years afterwards, hmm. he was first published in 1922 in a pulp magazine called The Smart Set. Uh, he wrote most of his fiction while he was in San Francisco in the 1920s. He's known for his authentic sounding dialogue. Um, most of his early work appeared in Black Mask magazine, which was a uh, Black Mask. I think is one of the the maybe two pulp magazines that that was really well regarded in the literary field for the the kind of stuff that they published. Um, looking back, the the academy right academia um really does not care much for a lot of the pulp literature that was released during this time um dash hammett is one of those figures who stands out and and i think even in its moment its cultural moment um the people who really looked down on a lot of like common working class literature um like what the pulp literature would have been still felt like Black Mask was probably the best of any of these magazines. Surviving to this day, I would say that, you know, Dash Hammett and um, Raymond Chandler maybe are the most well-regarded in yeah. academia. Yeah, their... Ray Chandler and, and Dash Hammett for sure. And Ray Chandler kind of came after Dash Hammett. Right. Um, and he continued to write, I think, even into the 1960s. Um, but, you know, Dash Hammett, as we'll kind of see... Um, was kind of shoved out of the limelight for a little bit of time because of some other stuff that was going on, right? right. So um, due to a financial dispute about some back pay, Hammett left Black Mask in 1926 for a period of just like a couple months, right? Um, he wrote some, some ad copy for a jeweler in San Francisco, and then the new editor of Black Mask brought him back in summer 1926 where he contracted a whole bunch of stories that would lead into... I think the most successful period of writing for Hammett. Um, his first four novels were originally serialized in Black Mask magazine. Um, and uh, I think those are the, the books that we most talk about, right? Um, Maltese Falcon was one of these books that was uh, originally serialized in, right. in Black Mask magazine. So was The Thin Man? Yep. I think I believe it was Red Harvest, Thin Man, um, Dane Curse, and Maltese Falcon. Maybe okay. not in that order. Yeah. Um he became romantically involved with Lillian Hellman in nineteen twenty nine, and they remained partners for the next thirty years. And this is really important because Lillian Hellman is another really interesting literary figure, um, who I think was also very well connected to a lot of interesting figures in literature at this time. Not the Hillman Mayonnaise <clears throat> dynasty, though. Not to my knowledge. 
Who knows, don't, man? Don't make me Google that. <laughs> <laughs> was it the same Hellman's? Was it the same Hellman's? Uh, pro- probably not. I'm just going out on a limb and saying pro- probably not. <laughs> um, his final novel, The Thin Man, was published in 1934. Um, he moved in with Hellman in the 1940s in upstate New York. In 1935, um, Hammett joined the League of American Writers which was a pretty well-known communist organization. Mm. Um, And he joined, officially joined the Communist Party in 1937. Uh Uh-oh. He was associated with a number of known communists, including Lillian Hellman, which, you know, was his partner for 30 years. Alexander Trachtenberg, uh, Louis Untermeyer, and Arthur Miller. Oh. Yeah. Um, he wrote a screenplay in 1942 for the film Watch on the Rhine, which was based on one of Hellman's plays. Um, and uh, that one received an Academy Award nomination, although the screenplay award that year went to Casablanca. <laughs> ah. Who remembers that movie? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to if you're going to choose, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he enlisted again in 1942, served in the Aleutian Islands, uh, but was transferred because of his radicalism. They found out that he was communist, and of course, that kind of changed their mind about who they wanted him to be They fighting. McCarthyized him. They had no illusions yeah, on who they wanted there. During World War II... Um, that was a bad pun. Oh, man. That's, that was a good pun. That That's, was a good pun. Wow. I didn't even get it until you opened up your arms and started looking around the room. Like, <laughs> yeah. He, uh, golly. I'm going to seethe about that for a couple hours. <laughs> we'll come back to it. Um, he developed emphysema during World War II. Um and then he returned to uh, po- returned post World War II to his political activism, um, and this is where things kind of get crazy, right? He um, partnered up with the Civil Rights Congress to create a bail fund to assist political activists, specifically within the Communist Party hmm. in the United States, right? Um, so Senator McCarthy was a big fan of his then. Right, yeah. The CRC, the Civil Rights Congress, right, was flagged as a communist front group by the U.S. Attorney General pretty shortly after its, its um, you know, construction. Uh, the CRC gained attention in 1949 when it bailed out 11 men indicted under the Smith Act for conspiracy, uh, criminal conspiracy Ugh. against the United States. Four of them fled the country in 1951 rather than return to federal authorities um, after, you know, they were released on bail and their their courses or or their cases were continued in the courts of the United States. Wow. Um, So when these four kind of like ran off, um, there was a congressional investigation into the CRC to discover what what kind of occurred there. Um, Hammett testified in 1951 um, in in front of Congress, but refused to cooperate, citing the Fifth Amendment. Um, And as a result, he was found guilty of contempt of court and sent to a federal penitentiary in West Virginia. 
where he stayed for a couple of years. Can you cite the Fifth Amendment when you're uh, testifying to Congress? I mean, no. No. <laughs> Wait, you can. I mean, you can cite anything you, can cite you want. It. I mean, because that's not but, a that's but, not a criminal, you know, right. venue. Yeah. So I wonder. So he he refused to to participate, right? right. Basically, because they were kind of pressuring him, like. You know, because he was part of the construction of this bail fund, which ended up, you know, springing these 11 dudes. And then, you know, four of them fled the country rather than face, you know, charges. Right. Um, Damn. Yeah. So he he refused to talk about, you know, his role and and specifically to name any of the other people at the CRC that were, you know, um, responsible for the creation and maintenance of this bail fund. Um, Because he was he was really involved in this organization and i think he was actually kind of the gatekeeper for this bail fund right he he watched over it he was the treasurer right whatever um yeah so he he was sent to jail um his books were taken out of print in the 1950s due to to his part in the legal proceedings against the crc as well as his communism um, a lien on his income was tallied by the IRS for back taxes that they said he owed since 1943. He testified again in 1953 to the House Un-American Activities Committee about his activities, but refused to cooperate. No action was taken at that point, but he was officially blacklisted as a result. Um, for most of his life, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he gave it up in 1948 um, after he was kind of pressured by his doctor to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, he was sick for the majority of his life, becoming more and more of a hermit until his death. And he died in 1961 of lung cancer. He was buried in Arlington National Cemetery as a war veteran. It makes me think he breathed in some shit during those two wars. I mean, probably. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he already had tuberculosis. As we know, everybody smoked tobacco um, right. during this period of time. And he was uh, a prolific smoker. He developed not just tuberculosis, but also emphysema. Yeah. Um, mm. And then died of lung cancer. Tuberculosis, emphysema, and then lung cancer. Man, he ran, yeah. the, he ran the whole He He gamut. put his lungs to use. Yeah. Right? He did not hold back at all. Um, His published work, like we said, is only about five novels. Um, Red Harvest was published in 1921, or I'm sorry, 1929. Uh, The Dane Curse, 1930. Malty's Falcon, 1930. The Glass Key, 1931. The Thin Man, 1934. Um, He wrote a bunch of short stories from 1922 to 1934. He did Watch on the Rhine, the screenplay in 1943. Um, he did a daily comic strip feature for King Features Syndicate. He was pretty busy. Yeah, in 1934. Um, and he's got some original story credits for four films from 1941 to 1939. Right. right. After that period in time, though, um, he he kind of gave up writing. And it, it's really interesting. But I think what, what gets me, though, is that he... I mean, you say like after that time he gave up writing, but he was very, very busy in this political activism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And people don't, I mean, we learn about in history, like the effects of McCarthyism and stuff on citizens, but we don't know how much that ruined people's lives, how much it destroyed their lives. Just yeah. even like, so for somebody like Dash Hammett, who is obviously an, an, a, a, a confessed communist, 
there were people who were caught up in this stuff that that were never even a part of it, and it was just they made the wrong enemy, and so yeah. it was almost like the Salem witch trials. They were like named, I and also, it's I also totally, just think and it that, ruined their lives. I yeah. also think that we we really have to understand um, communism in 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 and the American idea of communism as being like very. Um, what's the word I'm I'm looking for? When Americans Pro- propagandized, hear, yeah, when Americans right? hear communism, they automatically think Russia, they think Stalin, they think oh, that's they think the new enemy. People are coming, you know, sweeping in to to try to steal your land and steal your stuff, yeah. right? Um, which is is completely not true. It is not in keeping with the ideals of American communists at the time. Right. Russia and the Soviet Union were part of Marxism, which is an interpretation of communism, but it isn't communism. Well, and, and I, I think we also should should state like Marxism is not what ends ends up, you know, creating these um, dictatorships in Europe, right? Right. Like Marxism is, if you actually read any of the tenets of Marxism, it, it does not lead to to you know, the creation of the governments in, in uh, Russia or other spots in in Europe, right? Yeah. Um, that's not to say that they don't claim some aspect of, of Marxism, right? But I think that um, as, as happens a lot of the time, right, a lot of these, I think these cultural ideas are adopted by radicals who then only pay lip service to what they they say they're about and then they they go off and do their own thing right Right. so yeah so so let's um i didn't know if there was anything you wanted to add to that but let's go ahead and jump on the maltese falcon then because that's specifically kind of what we're talking about yeah maltese falcon i think is a fascinating book right right? um and it's probably the best example um out there on uh you know the subject of of hard-boiled detective novels right um it's routinely cited it's like probably the best i don't even think it's necessarily uh hammett's best book i think his best book for me is probably red harvest um but maltese falcon is the one that basically everybody knows right um the uh, i don't know do you want to give like a lowdown of the story like kind of yeah the the summary the summary um so the you read the book yeah i read the book yeah so the 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 summary i think the book is is really about this um detective named sam spade and sam spade um gets a visit from a girl who wants to contract him for a job she makes up a phony story about what the job is um where basically he and his partner believe that they're just supposed to tail this guy because this guy has been hanging out with this girl's uh sister and uh they're trying to figure out where the sister is that's you know typical private detective work right? right so spade's partner um goes off to to investigate this guy you know tail this guy um and a couple hours later turns up dead and spade starts trying to figure out all right what happened to my partner he finds out that the guy that his partner was tailing was also shot multiple times and shows up dead a couple hours later. No. Oh. And begins to realize that there is a much bigger issue at play. And and he starts down this road of trying to figure out what the actual stakes are behind this contract, you know, he was made to, to fulfill. 
Um, and as he investigates, he uncovers a conspiracy by a number of different backstabbing individuals who are searching for what they call the Maltese Falcon. It is a statuette um, with some history of uh, basically um, leading back several hundreds uh, of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the statuette was supposed to be given to like one of the uh, Spanish kings or something like King Charles or something like that as tribute. Um, this statue of a falcon or whatever that's made of like a bunch of gold and and rubies or whatever right um and it has this this weird rich history uh and these these criminals are trying to get their hands on on the the falcon it it serves kind of as a macguffin right right right. it's just the thing that everybody wants and so uh sam kind of finds himself uh, embroiled in this like very very conflictory intrigue um as he's he's trying to set straight you know who killed his partner uh why did they kill his partner and uh and why is this damn macguffin that everybody's looking for so important and one of the tenets to me for these kinds of stories that he kind of sets up here is he makes the stakes even more personal for Spade by having the cops initially suspect him. Right. Yeah, and the cops suspect him. So he's he's trying to find the murderer, but he's also suspected and kind of intimately wrapped up in this. And he's he's trying to deal with a whole bunch of stuff, right? Like he's he's been sleeping with his partner's wife. That comes out in the wash. Um, he becomes romantically entwined with Bridget O'Shaughnessy. The, the girl who comes to him um, with this fake story and, and originally contracts him. Yep. Um, he becomes, you know, kind of accidentally embroiled with uh, intrigue of this guy, Gutman, who's looking for the Falcon. Um, and another dude, Joe Cairo, who is previously um, kind of a partner of O'Shaughnessy, mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, kind of, again, O'Shaughnessy is so unreliable. She's... She's so unreliable. Um, She kind of stabs everybody in the back. and uh, Or shoots them. Or shoots them. Spoiler (laughs) alert. (laughs) Can we spoil a book that is... We ask ourselves this every episode. (laughs) 80 years old. It's an open-ended debate. Can you spoil something? If an 80-year-old book falls in the forest, can you spoil it? It's it's not even 80 years old. It's 92 years old at this point. Oh, man. Yeah. So you were talking, um, you were telling me about how how the things that Sam Spade observes is relevant to his ability to transcend class and work within the different classes that he's forced to work with. This is one of the things that I think makes this book so damn good and why we should read it, right? Um, because I think no other, no other writer, um, in America at this time, I think was, was really as concerned, um, with kind of depicting class and, and depicting kind of problems of class, um, in such a unique way. right? Right. Dash Hammett's characters, if you look at his, his detectives, they're constantly remarking on the way that they dress, the way that they speak the way that they make themselves up, right? Um, and and all of these are class signifiers, right? Yeah, he, right. He's constantly using his his uh, characters and their narrative, right, 
to inspect um, the intersection of, you know, class, race, gender, what have you. Um, and I think that that gives us a, a really unique view of kind of America at that moment in right. time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think um, the stuff that I really latch on to with his work, you know, for one thing, his vocabulary, um, the style of narration that he uses, it's um, not super complicated linguistically. You and I compared it to Hemingway when we talked about it. I think a comparison to Hemingway is really appropriate. But I think that comparison also lends itself to that idea that Hemingway spoke of, which was that iceberg theory. Like as plain as mm -hmm. it seems on the surface, if you really look at it, it gets deeper and deeper. And that's something like I want to continue with you on this conversation, yeah. but I want to bring up when I talk about the craft side of it, like kind of how this is represented. Yeah. So. And I think what's fascinating is that you know, Black Mask mag magazine was really built for or, or created for a working class readership. Yeah. And so um, the, the language that's used, I think, by Hammett and other authors in Black Mask is really related to um, that working class readership. Right. We cannot divorce that class consciousness from this sort of story. Right. Yeah. And I think it's really important, too, that we see these detectives as working class fellows, right? As working class writers. Uh, yeah. Or not writers, uh, working class characters. Right. Right. Very um, blue collar. Very blue collar. Right. They're they're hitting the pavement like like their detection um, is labor to them. Yeah. Right. It is how they they feed themselves. It yeah. is how they make their way through. Um, and as we see, you know, from Sam Spade's apartment and stuff like that, it's a very Spartan living. Oh, right? yeah. There's not a whole lot of excess. Yep. Um, another thing that I think is really interesting um, is the way in which Hammett's characters code switch mm -hmm. um, as they talk to the different characters. Do we want to define code switching for the audience real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so code switching is... Basically, so in the simplest of linguistic terms, it's um, it's when you combine or switch between dialects or ideas of language um, within like the sin single character switches. So yeah. a common reference we see in this, if you ever watch that older Adam Sandler movie Spanglish, um, yeah. where the idea is like this, this bilingual person switches. This is very, this is different from what Hammett does, but it's in the same kind mm -hmm. of universe. So it's this idea of like a bilingual person. And they, if you you talk to them and they're like a native non-speaker of English, but they're speaking English, they can code switch between the two languages and they'll, yeah. they'll put in like say some Spanish to help kind of, cause they can't think of the English word. Um, but then you also right. see this too, like with people who are native English speakers, but maybe they speak different dialects. So like, well, I um, and I think even even <clears throat> without regards to dialectic uh, speaking or right. speech, right? I think it's it's also important to kind of note, like you code switch depending on who you're talking to. Exactly, you'll speak differently to your mother um, than you might speak to your friends, even right. if it's subtle. Yeah, there, we see this a lot. Things, yeah. I mean, I, a lot of black communities um, talk about code switching a lot because mm -hmm. the way that they might speak. Um, to the, an audience of, of their peers or an audience of their friends yep. is completely different to how they might speak to a white audience. Right, because there's right? this pressure exactly. to, to do so. Yeah. My stepfather was a, a radio DJ, and 
in his business, I would watch him do this like in live time. Like he would, if he was doing something that was very uh, presentable, very professional, then he would have almost this Midwestern no accent about him. But then if he was trying to garner business from a local community member there in the central Arkansas, yep. he would code switch a little bit and adopt that dialect mm-hmm. to kind of reach that person as he's talking to right. them. Yeah. yeah, And I think it was almost on a subconscious level, but he was still able right. to do that. But all that encom- encompasses the idea of code switching. When yeah. I go back to Texas, I think I probably yeah. do too. We I'm all do saying, it. Everybody does dumb. it. Yeah, everybody does Shoot. it. Shoot. But it, yeah. it's, it's one of those <laughs> things that is very, I think, underrepresented in literature. Yep. And this is one of the reasons why I think Dash Hammett rings out as so authentic feeling because his character uh, or his characters code switch depending on the situation that they're in. And a lot of the time the code switching has everything to do with class and class distinction. I don't think that we can divorce any of the things that Hammett is doing from his communist ideals. Right. And, and class I think is at the forefront of um, the consciousness that he's trying to develop for his readers. Right. So the code switching is really, really important. The same with his descriptions of people. A lot of the descriptors are, are centered on their clothing. It's centered on what they carry with them. It's centered on, um, you know, the, the way that they portray themselves to the rest of the world, because that is, you know, clothing, that's sense of personal style, whatever. Right. That is a class consciousness thing. Right. Right. You, you dress differently when you go uh, to an Easter Sunday, uh, you know, gathering than you dress, you know, just on your casual weekend fling. Take me, for example. I wear a white hoodie and khaki shorts <laughs> right. to the studio. But if I'm going to be professional, I'll wear my white hoodie and black shorts. Or if right. I'm going to the gym, I wear my white hoodie and some spandex. Yeah, it's important to be able to make these <laughs> dramatic changes. The spandex is the most <laughs> from black to upsetting black. part of that. Uh, you know, he's from San Francisco, right? Yeah. Um, I was. This is kind of weird. I was watching uh, like 1911 uh, colorized footage mm. of San Francisco. It was just like a street. You know, just action on the streets. Yeah. And every single person was just to the nines with their clothes. Oh, yeah. sure. Every person had a hat. The ladies all had these dresses. And my daughter was asking me, like, why are they all so dressed up? And it has a lot to do with this class, you know, type of mentality. Yeah. Like, people don't realize, like, when people started taking planes commercially, that was like a huge deal. And people would dress up, they'd get dressed to the nines to go take their plane ride to wherever. And now it's like, <laughs> and it's now- like, yeah, no, they're not. It's like I mean, you also <laughs> would have like full course meals, you know, on yeah. a, on a flight, and everybody smoked and had coffee. Oh, yeah. the good old days. Now it yeah. feels like entertainment. <laughs> the good old <laughs> days of smoking on airplanes. Oh yeah. Oh my god. So the thing that I want to mention, um, so kind of what we're talking about here. If you if you've never read the Maltese Falcon and you're hearing all of this, um. One thing you might assume you being correct is that this is like a first-person narrative because everything is is so close. But it's actually written in something called third-person. And with third-person, we tend to – it's almost like instinctual. We want to say, oh, it's third-person omniscient. And I've argued before that third-person omniscient is not really a thing. Um, Third-person omniscient, when it is a thing, when it is done, is very, very confusing for the reader. It's Mm -hmm. not something that can easily be followed. Well, what Dashiell Hammett here does – and this is – brilliant um it's called close third person or free and direct style 
And what this is, is it's still the third person narration. It's still he said, she said kind of stuff. Yeah. But he attaches the narrator very, very closely to Sam Spade. Yeah. So the things that that the narrator is reflecting on in these descriptions of people, that's really Sam Spade seeing these these things. Yeah, He's noticing it's these Sam's things. It's Sam's voice. It's Sam's voice throughout this whole thing. And one thing you and I pointed out was that the narrator doesn't tell us that Sam Spade at one point is being followed, right? Right. We we just kind of learn it as the the narration is spotting things, and we're told Sam Spade sees like this kid or something, and we're and, not even told that right. S- Spade sees these things. It's just there's a kid on the corner. Yeah, the and kid, he, the same kids, you know, like looking at a haberdasher store as as Spade's eating lunch. Right, and it's never like Sam Spade does this or Sam Spade sees this. That kind of narration is actually right. far far removed from it. Right. Um, it's Sam Spade's eating lunch. There's a kid on the corner. Yeah. It's really, really what it's brilliant. It's well done. It's so economical. Right. And again, you know, to your point, this close, close third person perspective, I think um, the term that that I learned for it is focalization. Right. Focalization being um, you have a third person narrator that is is indistinct. Right. Like there is not necessarily a narrator who is telling you the story because I think we can see some books have a third person narrator. Although that third person narrator is certainly a character from somewhere in the story. So if we want to get really technical, we could talk about homodiegetic versus heterodiegetic narrators and fixed focalizers versus variable focalizers versus multiple focalizers with the rigios and reflectors. But I don't think we want to go there. We don't want to. We don't need to go that deep right now. (laughs) We can, though. We can. I can go that deep. I think the the focalization for this story is definitely definitely, Yeah, we're seeing the story through Sam Spade's. But Lens. overall, the, all those devices are in reference to what's happening in the scene and who notices it, who's, right. a, who's aware but of what. But what it does, because yeah, one thing right? we talked about, too, is is when you realize who Sam Spade is, you realize how intelligent he is. So now, yes. not only is this description and is this, this narration reflecting on class themes, yeah. but it's also revealing to us who the character is himself and right. showing us just how damn smart he is. Right. I mean, there's so what I love about this book is that it, it's like a lean 217 pages. Yeah, it's not long. Right? You could read it in a week. It's weekend. not very long. Um, and yet, there's so much information that he'll pack into a dialogue with characters. It's very frequently, Spade will start a conversation with someone not knowing exactly what it is that he's saying. Right. But yeah. someone else will start talking to Spade as if he knows what he's talking about. And mm-hmm. as a result, Spade gets way more information from somebody. Right. And it's absolutely brilliant because there's so little exposition in yeah. this story. You uncover the same information that Spade has as it's, it, it, you know, the characters are talking to him. I don't think, I don't remember. I don't think we of, get yeah. any kind of, because there's such things as dialogue beats and dialogue tags. And I want to explain that to the reader or the listener really quickly. Dialogue tags are like the he said, she said stuff. Yeah. Dialogue beats are actions or behaviors paired with that. So it's like, he said this, you know, somebody quotes something and then like a dialogue beat would be like, um, he took a drink of coffee or 
or it might be a thought inserted inside the the yeah. character's head, and right. we don't get a lot of those thoughts yeah. inserted inside the character. I don't think we get any. No, it's just I, I, there's. I mean, there are very very few. Right. I'm a I'm a proponent of dialogue beats. Oh, I, I am too. I really don't like tags very much when I read. I love dialogue because you can though. infer more with the beats. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I, and I mean, it's it's all like here's an example. It so should like mimic a, a kind of like a a more natural setting right an example an example of like a dialogue tag might be um you better get away from her he said uh or he whispered or he said angrily or something right versus you better get away from her close quotes his face reddened his fist pounded right. on the desk give a description I mean, of what you get more uh, the beat gives you more yeah. it doesn't tell us what to think or what to feel or what the character is thinking and feeling it shows us through the descriptors and Hammett definitely uses more of the dialogue beats yeah. than he does dialogue because you can tags. infer more you can infer more than one emotion with the beat right because right. he right. said angrily well that but, only gives you he's but, angry but yeah. he but said while then, he nervously tapped his pencil right. that could be that could be angry Nervous, um, yeah. you know, a lot of different things. But even all at then, once. we get long passages of dialogue where where two characters are just talking to each other, and I, I think it's it, again the economy with which he delivers all of this dialogue is so fascinating, and yeah. there's so little exposition. I mean, there's really only one one part um, where one of the characters exposits what's really going on. Yeah. To, to Spade. And that's right. very late in the book. And suddenly we understand the stakes. And from that point forward, we can move on with the resolution of the story. And I almost feel like that was more for the reader than it's for Spade. Like Spade right. already knows this. It's, like, right. it's almost like confirmation for him. So the book. You know, well, <laughs> I don't know. The it's, one spot I'm talking about is when Gutman explains the entire history of the Maltese. Family. OK, gotcha. And, yeah. and that yeah. is that's the expository dialogue that that we need that Spade that spade needs yeah that's true but it's it's hilarious how he'll go in and talk to his lawyer for example and the lawyer starts trying to explain stuff to spade and he's like skip it i fucking understand that part let's move on yeah and i think that's so great because um for one it keeps your reader on the level right it doesn't treat your reader like your reader's dumb because your reader has read this whole fucking story too i don't need a (laughs) recap Exactly. Of everything I just exactly. read. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and neither does Spade. So if Spade's like, cut the shit, get to the good stuff. You know, like, tell me something I don't know. <laughs> He's speaking kind of for the reader, it's right? So yeah. brilliant. Yeah. It's so well done. So this book could have been 300 plus pages oh, if, yeah. if he oh, hadn't been to- as expeditious totally. in, in exactly. saving information. Yeah. Right. But yeah. but as That's a result, cool. I think. And I he, feel like if it were written today, it probably would be about 400 pages. It probably would. Because I, I don't know that there are many writers out there. I, like, period. Not only that, I but I don't think the publishing, and just like an editor at a publishing house, not necessarily our publishing house, but at, at one of the big four or whatever, yeah. be like, oh, no, you need to explain more to your reader here. And uh, Yeah. Right, I, right. I, just straight the, up, I don't even think from the past century there is anybody who does this as well as Spade did. Yeah. I, you know, I think that an argument could be made that Ray Chandler is, I mean, he's an excellent writer. Do not I mean, get me wrong. I mean, Hemingway did, but not within the same genre. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. But I think that when, you know, when we talk Hemingway or we talk Ray Chandler or we talk Dash Hammett, I yeah. mean, we are talking about three individuals who are truly in a field of their own. Yep. And I'm not saying that there aren't writers who, you know, um, 
do dialogue tagging or something like that that aren't great writers. I'm right. just saying when it comes to this kind of a style, when it comes to this particular skill, I don't think there is anyone who can hold a candle to what Dash Hammett was doing. Artistically, okay. I think his work... This is my my thesis of the episode. You ready? <laughs> this is my hot take of the episode. Hot I take. think that artistically oh, wait, speaking, <laughs> Dash Hammett to me is like um, like technical jazz. It's it's it, it, there's nothing quite like it, right? Yeah. And I think that Dash Hammett and his style, and and by extension, the hard boiled detective, is as American. Um, and distinctly American, a form of art as jazz is. And they both arose around the same, they were both they're, coming to prominence this, in the same time. It's the same cultural influences, I think, that create this this artistic moment. Right. And I, I do not think that you can, I, I don't think you can divorce Dash Hammett and uh, hard-boiled detective fiction from the specific American landscape that created it. Just like yeah. I don't yeah. think that you can remove jazz. I think jazz is an Ameri- a purely American art form. I agree. And I think that um, Dash Hammett's hard-boiled detective fiction, and by extension, a lot of hard-boiled detective fiction, I think is very distinctly an American art form. Nice. I agree. Nice. I agree. That's a good take. Good so basically, take. hopefully, if we haven't convinced you to read this fucking novel or to explore Dash Hammett and his yeah. other works, then you're, I don't know. I don't you're have doing a word. yourself a disservice. That's a nice way to yeah, put it. You're fucking yeah. up your whole life. You're fucking right. up your whole life. <laughs> so I think, is that all we want to say about it? I, You know, I think so. I think, I think it's yeah. just... It, it, Hammett himself was a really interesting figure. He's a figure that yep. I don't think we talk enough about. And I think that his literature is one of those, um, you know, kind of collections of, of American literary art. Um, that I mean, given what happened to him in a personal life, too, I mean, this feels the whole story, the whole universe of Dash Hammett, his, his you know, the, 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 the uh, detective thriller, the, the rise of jazz, how all this kind of culminates together feels very not just the the art that's inspired by this it's yeah. all like very 20th century americana i think that yes like exactly. between the mccarthyism yeah. and the you know everything yeah. that happened to him this is americana this the is america fact that you can taste the smoke in the room when a detective yeah. is talking to a perp <laughs> right i think i think that is is really a tribute to how much of a cultural mainstay, right? This is kind of created for us. Yep, exactly. All right, so uh, we are. Thank you for that episode, Trevor. I think you did a wonderful job of that. Oh yes, of course. Um, Damn it. We are going to be at StokerCon, or we are at. Oh, I don't know when does this air. Okay, this this airs after StokerCon. We were at StokerCon. We, we were at StokerCon. Uh, we saw your faces. <laughs> we're You're confused. All so beautiful. And uh, and we had a really great time. It was wonderful. I feel like Donnie Darko. I'm just in multiple realities all at once. I just, um, uh, you know. I, I feel like you're jinxing yourself talking about, like, we went and we had a great time. Nothing bad happened at all. <laughs> <laughs> we were not murdered. Easy for That's for sure. Let's the herbs did not track us down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's stop right there before we jinx ourselves. Uh, hey, you know what is out uh, for people to buy right now? What, Trevor? What? K.A. K. Huff's 
Ground Control. We own Ground Control. Oh, that's right. We got it. Ground yes. Control to K.A. Huff. <laughs> <laughs> Book trailer right there. I have to sing something at the end of every episode. <laughs> yeah, you do, you do. Uh, we also have Curtis Harrell's Melpomene's Garden. Yep. That um, is out now So Ground well. Control is, is uh, grounded sci-fi. Ground control is I would grounded, call it grounded sci-fi. sci-fi. Yeah. It it truly is a magnificent novel. Terrific. I loved it when it it uh, was a book from Lights Out Inc. I love it even more now that it is a book from Property Naturally, that's right. We acquired the rights to it. We're so excited about this book. We really want you to read it. Um, and hey, if you do read it. Go on back through our backlog of episodes, and you yep. can listen to our interview with K.A. Huff. Yep. We've got uh, another anthology uh, coming out this year. Uh, I think submissions open Tales, in July. Yep, Tales of Slayhouse 2022 we have is opening for submissions July 1st. Three other titles that are coming soon that we'll talk more about as we get further along in those projects. Indeed. We have the Summer of Universal Horror. Is that what we're going to call that it? That is coming up. That is right on the horizon. That is right. And and the, the series that we're heading into for this summer is a look at all of the Universal Horror monster movies. We're talking Dracula. We're talking The Mummy. We're talking Creature from the Black Lagoon. Bella mm. Lugosi, Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney Jr., I mean, yeah. we're getting into some really, really good stuff. Anything that inspired a Rob Zombie fun. album, we'll cut, we'll get into it, right? Essentially, <laughs> sure. Anything yeah. that is inspired horror, and the yeah. you know, <laughs> I, th- I think it's going to be really fun because this yeah. stuff. I mean, this is horror that spanned from the 1930s into the 1950s. Yes, some yep. pre, some pre-code horror, yep. some post-code horror. And uh, I think it's it's phenomenal stuff. We're going to have a lot of fun watching it, a lot of fun reviewing these movies, talking about these movies. And our intent is to, every episode, look at uh, one or two of these monster movie films and talk about why they are so special and why you should watch along with us this summer. Yes. All right. Um, uh, if you want to check out anything else Wayne Howard Studios is doing, we got patreon.com slash Wayne Howard. We do music and CGI and all that cool stuff, as well as uh, great podcasts. You guys are working on us, uh, working with us too on some book trailers. Uh, yeah, yeah. We and got some, cool some dramatic readings man, on, on patreon.com slash Slayhouse. You can also find some dramatic readings. You'll find some, uh, some. Uh, exclusive illustrations, uh, portraits of the Slay siblings. You'll find yes. some hot takes. And we haven't even it's, talked about it. It's about to it, get but, cool. It's about uh, to get real cool. Yeah, starting in July, we are going to have two original fiction um, audio readings, audio narrations that we yep. performed here in the studio. Yep. Yes. So excited about that. So Stick excited. Around. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, that's a wrap. Yeah.